So today I was thinking about um, I was thinking about rules, and as kids leave, it's probably fitting to be thinking about rules, right? Because um, as you're a kid, that's often what you remember, all the rules you may or may not have had. But I was thinking about how rules or instruction, things that people tell you to do or not do, and, and how we follow them or we listen to them. And, and I was thinking about how um, sometimes you can follow the rule exactly as it's stated, but you're missing the whole point. Right? You can follow the instruction literally, and you miss the whole point of what you're trying to do. And I was thinking, well, how would I illustrate that today? Because that's what, kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit. But I was thinking about maybe you read these books when you were a kid, Amelia Bedelia. If you have not, you're missing out. Uh, you can read them now, and they're still kind of funny. Right? So Amelia Bedelia, like here's, I'm going to summarize a couple of scenes from this book. Um, but in the book, a couple of things happen. Uh, one, she is asked to dress a chicken, and so she literally dresses up a chicken. Right? She's asked to take out the lights or turn out the lights, and so she puts them on clotheslines. She is asked to dust the living room, and so she takes dusting powder and puts it all over the living room. Right? On and on again, she takes, she's called to draw the drapes, so she literally draws the drapes on a piece of paper. So she does everything literally that she's asked to do. And so at one level, you cannot be upset with her because she did what she was asked to do. The problem is she missed the whole point. Right, so I was trying to think, well, what's a way that maybe, like, this is an exaggerated way that maybe you've not ever done this. I hope you've not ever done this. But you could exaggerate it, like, if, if an example, if you're driving and you get to a stop sign and you stop your car and you put it in park and you turn it off and you get out and you walk away because it says you had to stop right there. Right, the point isn't to actually, you have to stop forever. The point is that you can stop and we want you to pay attention to make sure there's nothing else coming before you go forward. We want to eliminate accidents. The point of the law or the rule is that you would not get in an accident. I don't know why they have speed limit signs. That's another conversation for another day. But for stop signs, that's why they exist. We want you to make sure that you don't cause more accidents. And so I was trying to think about how one of the things that often happens for us is that we will try to, either in our misunderstanding of a rule or law, or in our desire to bend it to our will, we will ignore certain parts of it so that we can we can get what we want out of it. And so what's the point of that? We can miss the goal, right? The goal of the rule or the law or the instruction and still follow it to the letter. And so the reality is for those who are desiring to be people of God in Jesus' day, that was often the case with many of them. And sometimes, if we're really honest, it's often the case with us because the goal wasn't the letter of the law. The goal was the heart of the law over and over and over again. And so we're continuing our series this week that will continue most of this year. What's it look like for us to be a follower of Jesus? To reorient our entire life around the idea of following Jesus because that is the definition of what it means to be a Christian. To reorient your whole life around him. And so we want to understand more and more the way in which he lived. What's it look like for us to understand his words and his life and his teaching in such a way that we become people who look and sound and act like Jesus, because that's what it means for us to be Christian. And so um, there'll be some people who will try to argue this, but really historically over and over again, the church has always said the central teaching of Jesus is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's, it's kind of talked about in all the other Gospels, but Matthew combines it into one little section, and it is the central teaching of all that Jesus taught. And it's central to what it means to live as people of the kingdom of of God. You're like, what does that mean? Great question. Over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus says, 
the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and what he's trying to articulate is there is a unique way that people of God are called to live in the world. It is counter to the world in which we live. It should look radically different. So much so that sometimes, we'll even talk about in the church today, we'll say things like the upside-down kingdom of God, right? The upside-down kingdom, because what seems normal or normative in our day is a way we are not called to live, even if others live that way. And so it's an upside-down way of viewing the world. And what Jesus would say is it may seem upside-down, but it really is right-side-up. And so you and I are called to live in this upside-down kingdom, which really is in God's eyes the right-side-up kingdom. And so Jesus begins this sermon with a, a section of teaching known as the Beatitudes, and we're going to just read it together, beginning with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Here's what we see. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't often think about this idea that meekness and mercy and peacemaking and pure in heart, those are not attributes that culturally are greatly valued. And yet... Jesus makes it abundantly clear that those are central to being a follower of his. In fact, they're so central that he says, you will be blessed in your life if you embrace these. None of us are like, hey, sign me up for persecution. But what he says is this, if you're blessed, if you're persecuted for my sake, then this is the reality. And so what he says in this text, it's the beginning of the upside-down way of his kingdom. And then we look at his life and his teaching and all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice a couple particular things as we look at this over the next couple weeks. What you'll notice is this. It's not so much about the rules, although he does say some things we're not supposed to do, but it's about the heart of the person which he's speaking to. Those attributes that I just mentioned, meekness, mercy, those who are mortally comforted, those are not like things we think, like those are not necessarily actions, they're more like the essence of who we are. And so what Jesus is speaking to is, who are you and I? And so he's calling people to understand that our hearts and our minds have to be transformed into the image in which he is teaching and speaking, which later on he'll say that my spirit will be with you so that you can become like me in that way. And so what we begin to see is this, that we are invited to be that kind of unique people. And so what we find next is this. He's not calling us back to a list of rules, but a way of life, a way of being, if you will, of becoming like him. And so in that, I'm going to read a couple lines here in a minute. They're going to go like, well, that, I thought you said he was about a way of becoming, and it sounds like you just said he's back to a bunch of rules. Well, bear, bear with me. Let's look at what we see next, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. At first glance, we're going, what is he trying to say? Let's begin with this first line, right? He says, you are the salt. Well, we don't think of salty as being a good thing. In fact, Urban Dictionary says this, that when you're salty, you're upset over something little. And so here's the reality. In our world, there's been a bunch of Christians at times who have been salty in the way that Urban Dictionary defines it over something that's pretty little. Like, I'll give an example, and I'm sorry if I, this one hits close to home. Hopefully it doesn't, right? Uh, people who get all bent out of shape, people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or worry about what the Starbucks cup looks like. Who cares? I'm 99.9% sure Jesus doesn't care. But I do think he cares about our heart and what it means to be salty. In fact, there's a definition here. If we're going to talk about salt in the ancient world, there are three things salt existed for. It is to purify things, to preserve them, and to add flavor, right? To purify, to preserve, and to add flavor. So in other words, what he's saying is this. The transformation of the world happens by our saltiness, in the way he would say it, by how we, we become holy, how we add to life. We are beneficial to those around us. And so I'd say far too often, um, I could have quoted you several people in history who have said, I might be a Christian because I like this Jesus guy, but man, have you met some of these people? They are miserable, right? Like, we're not called to be miserable or cranky or grouchy or just bitter. We're called to find joy and life and love that Jesus promises if we'll live following after him, we'll find life that leads to life. That doesn't sound miserable. And what we find in this, this is that we are called to be salt in ways that change stuff. So um, my devotions a few weeks ago, I was reading a, a, a thing about Dennis Kinlaw, former Asbury professor and, and seminary president. And, and so I'm just going to read just a brief thing because I thought he was talking about salt. And so I thought I would just share what he wrote. So Dennis Kinlaw, former Asbury seminary professor and Asbury college president, tells a story about growing up in rural Lumberton, North Carolina during the Depression. It was Dennis's job as a young boy to rub salt into the meat his father brought home from hunting. He would rub salt into the meat until his young muscles were sore. Finally, when it was thoroughly salted, he would hang it up in the storehouse. One day, company arrived, so Dennis's mother asked him to get some pork out of the storehouse. Dennis ran out, got a big piece of pork off a hook, and brought it into the kitchen. He laid it on his mother's cutting board and left. He was just about the front door when he heard his mother yell, Dennis! Young Dennis knew from experience that whenever his mother screamed his name like that, he was in trouble. So he slunk his way back to the kitchen and stood in the doorway afraid to go in. Looking up at his mother from the doorway, he noticed she was not glaring at him, but rather staring down at the meat. 
Dennis looked and noticed something unusual. He would say that it was the first time in his life he ever saw meat move. Stepping closer, he noticed maggots pouring out of the slice his mother had made into the pork. Dennis thought for sure he was going to get it, but all mom said was, not enough salt, Dennis, not enough salt. Now, it's easy to want to blame Hollywood or TV or liberal schooling or the government for the decay of our culture, but maybe, just maybe, the real problem is not enough salt. If we feel the world is decaying around us, the problem may very well be not enough salt. Now, this line, some of you are going, well, yeah, like, and you might come up with a list of all the things, the ways we need to be salty in the world, but here's the good news for us. You don't need to come up with a list of the ways you need to be salty. Jesus actually gives us the list. And so the good news for us is you don't have to figure out what your agenda is or what someone else's agenda is. You can go, hey, what's Jesus's agenda? And I should probably jump on that one instead of my own. So you're not going to find it on your local cable news television show or online. You're going to find it in the scriptures. In fact, you're going to find it in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to find it in part of the text we look at today. And so I was thinking about how the impact of salt really is incredible for us. And it's the same way with light. So just about a week or two ago, I was walking with a young man, and we were talking. And it was early in the morning before the sun had come up. And there's a street lamp on the road they lives on, and we were walking by it, and I just said, hey, like, here's the way that I believe God works in the world. He calls us to be people who, have been, who are his light in the world, and so you notice that no matter where we go outside right now, that light, no matter how far we get from it, is still light. That, that no matter what happens, this light, like, darkness cannot overcome it. It literally cannot do it. It is impossible for darkness to consume light. But light, when it is illuminated, does impact darkness, right? You know this. If you turn on the flashlight on your phone or like, you know, if you're like me and when you get up and it's really dark outside and you're trying to find your way to the door handle in your room and like you can't see yet or whatever's going on, you, you like just light your screen a little bit so you don't wake anybody up and you can find the door handle because just a little bit of light will push darkness away. A little bit of light. You don't even need a lot. But you notice that what it says here is that it doesn't illuminate darkness by telling darkness it's dark. It's by the light that it pushes the darkness away. In other words, there should be a marked difference by the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. They should be living in such ways that it would take people by surprise. Not because we're yelling at them from street corners, but because of the way in which we live, it would illuminate darkness by the light of our life. It's why what we find over and over again is Israel was called to be the light of the world but what they kept trying to do was function in the ways of the world and couldn't figure out why they weren't light to the rest of the world. They want to be the people of God, but they're trying to be the people of God like every other nation. That's just not how it works in God's kingdom because the values of the world are not the values of the kingdom of God. And so that's what Jesus says over and over again. So I love these words of William Barclay as he's talking about this particular passage. He says this, So then, Christianity is something which is meant to be seen. As someone has well said, there can be no such thing as secret discipleship. For either the secrecy destroys the discipleship, or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. A person's Christianity should be perfectly visible to all people. Further, this Christianity should not be visible only within the church. A Christianity whose effects stop at the church door is not much use to anyone. It should be even more visible on the ordinary activities of the world. Our Christianity should be visible in the way we treat a shop assistant across the counter, 
in the way we order a meal in a restaurant, in the way we treat our employees or serve our employer, in the way we play a game or drive or park a motor car, in the daily language we use, in the daily literature we read, a Christian should be just as much a Christian in the factory, the workshop, the shipyard, the mine, the schoolroom, the surgery, the kitchen, the golf course, the playing field, as they are in church. Jesus did not say, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. In a person's life, in the world, their Christianity should be evident to all. It's so good. So I was thinking, about what's that look like in your life, right? What's that look like in a practical way? And so I actually thought about a story about my dad. So my dad um, has sold carpet for basically my entire life. And um, years ago, I don't remember when, I was, I was still living at home, and I don't remember I was, I don't know if I was in middle school or high school or elementary, I don't have any idea. But I remember um, my dad, all, all the people at his work, they would all chip in every week, and I don't know if it was $5 or $10, whatever it was. It wasn't a massive amount of money, but it was enough that, like, it had some bearing, you know, like, could have been spent other ways. Uh, they would chip in to buy the Powerball, whatever the Powerball number was, and they would chip in every week and do this. And finally, one day, my dad decided, because he felt kind of convicted, that, like, God said, like, is that really where you want to put your money? Like, is that actually worth anything? You're just wasting money. And his thought was, well, if they win, I'm not going to have a job. And so he just kind of went along. And so he just said, you know, I, I just decided one day, God was kind of convicting me that I didn't need to do that, that I should, you know, that money could be spent somewhere else, like by lunch even, right? Like it wasn't, didn't need to go there. And so he stopped. He didn't say anything, but when they came by and said, hey, you know, you got your 5% he goes, ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to chip anymore. I'm, I'm out. You guys go ahead. Didn't make a big deal about it. That's all he said. The next day, one of his coworkers came and said, hey, Tony, I heard like you didn't chip in this week. Is there a reason for it? He goes, well, I just, I feel like I, I just don't want to spend my money in that way. I just don't want to. Like, there's certain places I don't want to put money, and that's become a place that I feel like God's telling me not to do that. And the guy goes, you know, it's funny you say that, because I've, I've kind of been thinking the same thing. And so he quit. And about four or five people who worked there quit doing it. Now, a bunch of them didn't quit, but four or five did quit, and it led to a conversation that lasted weeks there about why they were choosing not to do it, and people just kept asking them. So really, he goes, well, I just want to invest my money well, and I, I don't know that that's a great investment. And hope you guys win, right? Good luck, um, that kind of thing. He didn't tell people what they were doing was wrong. He just, by the light of his life, said, I'm not going to do this any longer. And that spoke more than the words he could have said. So what might happen in your life? Where might the Holy Spirit be calling you to be salt and light? Where might you be called to illuminate something before? Right? We think about the text, in the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, we could say it this way. The way of Jesus in our life should be winsome to others. If it's not, we may need to look at our life. There should be a winsomeness to the light and life of the people of God. It should be winsome to others, and if it continually pushes people away, then maybe we are not salt and light in the way that we think we are. Now, if you haven't caught it yet, <clears throat> Jesus definitely tells us there are things that we do, but more and more what we're seeing through this text is that he's calling us of ways to be, to become, things that would define our heart and our mind, the transformation of our lives. And so I read his text at verses 17 to 20. You might be going, yeah, that was kind of a weird section, like in the middle of all this other stuff. And we'll talk about some beyond that. It is a little weird section because in that section, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He says the, the law won't disappear, right, until heaven comes. He says, um, 
And so all these things are accomplished. Right? He goes on to say if you tell other people to set aside these commands, like that, that's not good for you. Or he goes to say that your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which, by the way, they were masters at following all the rules, better than you and I. So what is Jesus trying to say in this? It sounds like he's saying, hey, by the way, all these things, but now follow all these rules as well. What if I said that's not at all what he's trying to say? Because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, as I said, if they understood by the laws, by the rule following that they did, that was not illuminating the world around them. They were called to be a light, sitting on a hill. They were not that. Because again, they're trying to do it the way everybody else does it. And in their rule following, they would condemn you for your lack of rule following. That's not what light does. Right? That's something else. So I was trying to think, right, like, what do we do with this text? Because it sounds like Jesus is going back and saying, you have to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. That's what it sounds like at first glance. However, what do we do with that? Because we have, like, Paul writes in Romans 10.4, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Or in Galatians, when he says, if you're going to choose to keep part of the law, you've got to keep all of the law. Right? So you've got to know how you're going to anoint people with oil and sacrifice animals and where blood's got to go and when you've got to leave the town and how you've got to wash, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? He's saying if you're going to follow one thing, you've got to follow all of it. And so what Jesus is saying here, is he's calling us to that? Well, no is the answer. Not at all. In fact, we might be helpful to think about it this way. Um, there's kind of three things I think would be helpful. We could think in terms of this, in terms of the law. The church has never historically ever thought that you're called to follow all the rules of the Old Testament. It's never been true. In fact, here's the other part. We've never been called, nor should we, arbitrarily pick the rules that we like and discard the ones that we don't, which is what people often try to do. You cannot do that, by the way. If you're doing that, stop. And it can be easily argued that what Jesus is doing here is he's talking primarily about the Ten Commandments. And so what are you saying? Well, here's what I'm saying. If it sounds like I'm being dismissive of the Old Testament law, I am, intentionally. Because I believe we can be too, and here's why. It's literally what Jesus says next. Verse 21, or if we jump into verse 38 in a few moments, he says this, you have heard it said, so he quotes what had been Old Testament law, he says, but I say to you, in other words, I'm giving you a new law. And so what Paul is writing all about and through so much of the New Testament, there's the law of Christ. He takes what they understood and he reorients their mind around a new way of life. He is the fulfillment of, in fact, 12 times just in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It is why, by the way, your Bible is divided into Old Testament or Old Covenant and New Testament or New Covenant. There's a reason for that. And so what we see is this. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so what do we do with that? He's building upon the Beatitudes, right? This is in the culmination of a whole kind of text and teaching together. He's building on those Beatitudes. Blessed are the, right? We reread those just a few moments ago. And what did those have to do with? A transformed heart and mind, right? Our transformation does not come just through rule following. That's the whole point that Jesus is making. If it was, then your righteousness, your rule following must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because they are way better at following rules than you are. In fact, that's what they exist for. They're going to follow every rule. They have rules for the rules, so they can't break the rules. And what Jesus is saying, that is not what God is calling you to, to follow more rules, 
What he's calling to is a way of transformation, a transformed heart and mind and life, to live like me. And like, what does that mean with, do we just, what, 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 what does that mean? Like, even the Ten Commandments, are those out? Well, here, what if we said this? Jesus is quoted, right? He's asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we can summarize the Ten Commandments, right? The first four are all about how we love God. The last six are all about how we love other people. So what Jesus is saying is this, I am fulfilling these things, and I'm retelling you how you should live these out. By how you love God and by how you love others, you won't ever break the Ten Commandments because those are centered in love. And so what's this look like for you and I in this? What many have argued for much longer than I've been alive, right, for centuries and centuries and centuries, in fact, the early church talked about this, what Jesus does in the next 25, 30 verses is he rewrites a new law for the people of God. And here's what that begins to look like. And by the way, he lays it out, which is honestly way harder than a list of rules. I would like rules better than what Jesus goes on to say. Because what Jesus says, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 37 next week, but verse 38, here's what we find. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. By the way, he's quoting from the Old Testament. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. By the way, like this, this is why Jesus was crucified at so many levels, because he's taking the scriptures they knew, and he's, he's expanding upon them and eliminating parts of them and saying, here's what this actually means for your life. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you notice the lines where we began with the Beatitudes, becoming this kind of person, and then he talks about the law, and then he talks about these kind of things, and he says, wait a minute, do you remember you're supposed to be salt and light? Well, salt and light, right, means you don't just live like everybody else. Like, people who are bad people care for their families. People who don't believe in a God, like, right, they care for their families. But what he's saying is this, right, you're called to love even your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to care about people who don't care about you, right? This is a whole new way of life, and Jesus is calling his people, and this cannot happen by just laws that we follow. It happens by the law of Christ being written on our hearts and on our minds. Again, I like rules better than I like this because this requires the transformation of who I am and who you are. And for us to be followers of Jesus requires us to live in this way. It is why in verses 17 to 20, you notice the word practice showed up a couple of times. This does require practice for us. We must work at this because to continually practice the ways of Jesus leads to our transformation because you and I today go, we're not going to master this. But if we practice we embrace, if we live with this, if we spend more time with Jesus. In fact, I'd say it this way. This is not dismissive of the scriptures, by the way, but 
But if you were to read, if you could only read just a little bit, because like, let's be honest, most people don't read the Bible anyway. But, and so you're like, well, I do. Well, good for you. But I, I love you all. I really genuinely do. But I know most of you. And I love you. Tell me, ah, you know, I should read my Bible. I should start doing that. I haven't yet, but I'm going to start, right? So here's what I'd say to you. If you haven't started yet, start. Here's what I'd say. Read the book of James. It's incredibly practical. If you need practical stuff, so there. And then I would just live, immerse yourself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Immerse yourself in that. Listen to the life and teachings of Jesus over and over and over and over again. If you were just going to live there and never pick up the rest of the Bible, if you just read those four books, if that's all that defined you, you could find yourself following Jesus pretty faithfully. In fact, Matthew references all kinds of Old Testament stuff. So you even get some of it without even knowing it. But if you just lived with the words of Jesus, what you might find is you do would become transformed. Also, we do this by allowing God's spirit to shape us and mold us and transform us. Our practice matters. How we live matters over and over again because what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount is so difficult for us to embrace. This is a hard teaching, but it is, it is the law of Christ. In fact, I love the words of Dallas Lord. He does a good job of summarizing kind of what's this look like in our lives. I think it's helpful for us today. He says this, I submit my tongue as an instrument of righteousness when I make it bless them that curse me and pray for them who persecute me, even though it automatically tends to strike and wound those who have wounded me. I submit my legs to God as instruments of righteousness when I engage them in physical labor as service, perhaps carrying a burden the second mile for someone whom I would rather let my legs kick. I submit my body to the righteousness when I do my good deeds without letting them be known, though my whole frame cries out to strut and How do you and I take the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount where we argue the law of Christ and embody it in our hearts and our minds and our lives by the way that we live? Because here's the reality for us. Our submission to Jesus as Lord will lead us to places we never thought we could or would go. Our submission to Jesus as Lord of our life, of everything, of all that we are, will lead us to places we never thought we would or could go. He will transform us and we'll do things we never thought possible, we never thought we would do, that we never wanted to do, and we still may not want to do, but we know he calls them to us, and it's the way of life that leads to life. It is the way that life leads to all eternity. It's the way of life that leads to hope. It's the way of life that is light and salt in the world around us that leads to the transformation of the world around us. It's us being salty in all the right ways. And so this Wednesday, we showed a clip um, in Alpha that I'm going to show um, tonight because I, I just thought it was so powerful and moving. It's about a woman named Corey Tenboom who lost her family in the Holocaust and about her encounter and what that looks like. And so we'll go ahead and um, hit play of that clip at this time. One of my great heroes is Corey Tenboom. She's a Dutch Christian who hid Jews during the war. She was caught, and Corey and her sister and her father went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her father and her sister Betsy died there. She's an amazing woman, and after the war, she went and spoke to others about forgiveness. She was speaking in a church in Germany one time, and at the end of her talk, she recognized the man coming up to her, and she could see it was one of the most cruel guards from Ravensbrück. She pictured him as he was then, and as he came up to her, he said, I was a guard at Ravensbrück. 
He didn't recognize her, but she knew. She recognized him. She could see him, and she remembered walking naked past him. She said she felt so cold and so angry. He said, "I've become a Christian now. I know I did some very cruel things, but I've received God's forgiveness for the cruelties I've done, and I ask God's grace for an opportunity to ask one of my very victims for forgiveness." Fräulein Tenboom, once you were forgiven, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him, but I was not able. I could not. I could only hate him. And then I said, "Thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit, who has given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love." Is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free, and I could say, "Brother, give me your hand," and I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either, but he can. He can never touch the ocean of God's love. There's something powerful about this image, about a God who loves us enough and forgives us in spite of what we have done. It's this idea that you and I, and by the way, apart from the work of his spirit, we are not capable of forgiving our greatest enemies. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the love of Christ, through his crucifixion and his resurrection, you and I can come to the place that we can forgive even our greatest enemies. The perpetrators of the greatest atrocities to us, right? Did you catch the line? Like She didn't say, I didn't forgive him, it's okay. What she said was, I was incapable of forgiving him apart from the work of God's love and his spirit and his transformation of me. Apart from his forgiveness that I had received, I could not forgive him. But because of the forgiveness I had received, I could be a giver of forgiveness, and you'll never know the depth of God's love until you learn to forgive even your greatest enemies. Powerful story. But here's the crazy thing. It's not just Corey Tenboom's story. It can be your story, too. That we come to know the depth of God's love, when we're invited into his unique family, when we become followers of Jesus, he wants to reorient our minds and our lives, and he wants to transform us from the inside out so that we become salt and light to the world around us, so that we become the kind of people who are defined by the law of Christ, which is upside down, but really in his kingdom, it's right side up. Can you imagine what the world might look like around us? the people of God, who call themselves people of God, who call themselves followers of Jesus, if we lived as true followers of Jesus and we embraced the teachings of Jesus and lived the life of Jesus, can you imagine how that might impact the world around us? You and I cannot do it apart from the work of his spirit, but we do it in many ways by how we practice. And this morning, just a moment, we'll come to the table and we'll take communion together And the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. In the same way, this is my blood poured out for for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Right, what Corey Timboom recognized was this man who came before her had also received the forgiveness of his sins, and so had she. And in the eyes of God, her sins were not greater than his sins. I know it doesn't always feel fair in that, but the truth is you and I don't want God's grace to be fair. There's someone who's better than us, there's someone who's worse than us, and sometimes we're worse than them, and we don't want God's grace to be fair, but we want it to be free. We want it to be freely given. We want it to be receivers of his grace. So this morning, in just a moment, we'll pray, we'll invite you to stand, we'll sing a song together. But maybe, just maybe, God's stirring in you something where your heart and your mind needs to be transformed, where the ways of the kingdom of God are not the ways you are embracing in your life, and you go, oh, there's some things in my life I'm holding on to that I know are counter. Literally, you read some things today that, from the scriptures that Jesus says, do this, and I'm going, I'm not going to do that. But God's compelling you by the work of his spirit to lay those things down, to submit yourself to him. In our submission to Jesus as Lord, he will transform our heart and our mind and our life. And the more we follow after him, the more the law of Christ, which is the law of love, will redefine who we are. So this morning, we'd invite you as you come to the table, as you dip the bread into the cup and someone says to you, the body of Christ, and as you take and eat, it's blood and body of Christ to you, not in some kind of weird way, but in the submission way in which you come to the table, receive the very grace of God. It's a reminder that in his kingdom and his table, there is room for all people, for people who were, who perpetuated acts of atrocity in the Holocaust, People who are on the other side of that, the God who desires to forgive, doesn't mean there are consequences for those things. But it does mean there's forgiveness for you and I, so that we can find the life that leads to life, that we can come to know that Jesus died for you and I, for us to receive his grace. And once we have received that grace, we are called to be givers of that grace. And that's what it means for us to be salt and light in the world around us. And then all of a sudden, these words that we call the Beatitudes, these nice sayings, right? They become, oh, I get it. By the work of God's spirit, we get it, and they become things that become right side up for us instead of upside down. So you pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the way you love us, the way you come near to us. We thank you for the way as you come invite us to this table this morning and as those who come to serve, that we might find ourselves drawn to you in ways that are life-giving and life-changing, that you might help us to be the kind of people who find that we come to your table to receive your grace, that you are givers of grace, So, Father, we ask today that you might help us to find our life committed to you, to be your followers, your disciples, that the way of Jesus would be the way of our life. May we confess in this moment which we come to the table the ways that we fall short. May we trust that by your spirit and by your grace that you are transforming us to be like your son. And so, Father, we do ask that you would transform us in these moments to become more and more the people of God you have called us to be. Father, help us to look and sound and act and be more like your son, Jesus. And so may we become more and more aware of your spirit's presence. May we entrust whatever we need to entrust to you. We pray this all in your son, Jesus' name.